Lord, you have a name that is above every name. A name that, when spoken at one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we praise that name. Father, we want to put your Son on display this morning. Holy Spirit, speak through me, preparing hearts to receive what you have for us as we open our Bibles this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd be shocked if anybody recognizes this man. Anybody? This was Erica's first boyfriend. Okay. <laughs> you got her laughing, that one. You didn't see that one coming. Yeah, I just, just, it just came to me. So, Anyways, this is a picture of Harold Camping. I did not, I don't know who he is. The only reason why I know who he is is because this is from a... Uh, July 25th, 2023, just a few weeks ago, um, article from the, the Christian Post by uh, Dr. Michael Brown. And he says, enough with these crazy, crazy rapture prophecies. Um, apparently, Harold Camping, he first predicted that the judgment day would occur on or about September 6th, 1993. 94. And that would have been okay with me because we got married June 11th, 1994. So, um, but anyways, not because we weren't happily married, it's just I've got to finally experience marriage. Okay. Now, Erica's like, yeah, I'm ready to go home now and I married this guy. But that being the case, he predicted on or about September 6th, 1994. Well, when it failed to occur, he revised the date to September 29th and then to October 2nd. Uh, in 2005, Camping predicted the second coming of Christ on uh, May, 12, May 21st, 2011, whereupon the saved would be taken up to heaven in the rapture and that there would follow five months of fire, brimstone, and plagues on earth, with millions of people dying each day, culminating on October 21st, 2011, with the final destruction of the world. Now, what is most striking, Dr. Brown writes, about this sad account is that despite his previous failures in setting the date for Judgment Day, uh, many thousands still believed his 2011 prophecy, which received, you know, apparently wide attention. It was only after that final failure, and only exasperated by his age, he was about 90 at the time, that put an end to the folly. The latest, you ready for this, utterly ridiculous prediction is that the rapture will occur before the end of this year. Okay? He says, that's right, the clock is ticking rapidly, and we've got a few months at most before we're out of here. Now, many Christians believe this is true. Uh, now, Dr. Michael Brown goes on to say, for the record, I don't believe in a secret pre-tribulation rapture at all at any time in the future. So that being said, I do not divide over this issue. 
And some of the finest Christians on the planet today believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Instead, he says, I just want to expose this latest, completely unfounded, pre-trib prophecy. Especially since it claims to deduce all this information, ready for this? From the first word of the first line of the first book of the Hebrew Bible. Yes, from the opening letters of Genesis, you get the letters, English letters, B-R-S-H-Y-T, traditionally rendered in the beginning. C.J. Lovick has deduced that we will be out of here by the end of this year. Now, this is Dr. Michael Brown speaking. He says, as a student of the word, and more importantly, as a Hebrew language scholar, I can assure you that this is an absurd or absolute rubbish. You might as well deduce the date of the Lord's return using the first line of your local phone book. Lovick posted his claims in a 2018 YouTube video that has now been viewed. Take a guess how many times it's been viewed. Yes, more than 1.8 million times. Now he says, to show how ludicrous this idea is, Dr. Brown produced a series of videos. In one, he writes, "Um, I produced an absolutely astonishing insight from the words in the beginning, all from the English words, before explaining that it was a complete hogwash and that I had made the whole thing up. I was trying to illustrate the danger of reading hidden meanings into the letters. Yet in another video, I put the secret pictographic meaning of the Hebrew letters to the test, asking viewers to decipher two sentences in Hebrew, both consisting of just two words, using the alleged pictographic meanings that he created. So I list the alleged pictographic meanings to these four Hebrew words, the first of which allegedly consisted of ox plus ox goad, and the second allegedly consisting of bark, as in putting a mark on something, plus head, fish hook, and fence. Those are the, the words he chose. These were the alleged pictographic meanings of these various letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Here are some of the interpretations that he received. Ox goad plus ox equals get the ox to go. Okay. Mark plus head plus fish hook plus fence equals aim the fish hook to the head and either one. You can't access the fishing spot because it's blocked by a fence or maybe the good fishing spot is fenced off. Or number two, guard your fish cachet with the fence so no one steals them while you're still fishing. Now, what did the Hebrew words mean? Remember, they were, they were four words make up to two sentences. The first one was do not murder. The second was do not commit adultery. He says, yet when I expose this nonsense, he says there's no other word for it, it's just nonsense, people react as if I had spat on their Bibles or challenged their most sacred beliefs. I'm rightfully so. He says, it was really, it's really sad to see. He says, aren't the words God spoke to us words that are intelligible and understandable and mean what they say, words of life and truth enough for us? 
It's even sadder, though, and more disturbing when people actually think that hidden in the first word of Genesis is a prophecy that Jesus will remove the church from the earth by the end of 2023. This is absolute madness, not to mention a shocking indictment of our immaturity. That's really the, the biggest point. And so we come to Matthew 24 for a brief recap. And verse 4 is very apropos in light of this introduction. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one mislead you. Now I don't know in the history of mankind how many people have claimed that the, the second coming is and judgment day is happening. But I'm trying to present to us when we talk about how things end the most biblical, sound, reasonable interpretation. And I've got to admit to you that there are so many different views on how things are going to play out that it's, it's hard for me to, to understand. I, let me just say this. John Egerdahl was far smarter than I was. I, during my time off, I was reading a book that he had purchased. It's a case for amillennialism. And ouch, my brain hurt reading that. Who uses the word concomitant? Does anyone know what that means? Concomitant? You do? Well, you're a freak. Okay, anybody else? <laughs> concomitant. I was like, what is that? This is part of the problem with these theologians. You, you write the stuff that, like, I know this stuff, and I'm having to look up this word, and I'm like slowly reading it. I'm like, come on, man, bring the cookies down to my shelf, right? What is concomitant mean? I forget what it means. Along what? Along with. Along with. Okay. Yeah, just say along with. Thank you. So anyways, I specifically avoid saying these words and trying to say things so that you understand it because it's easier for me when I read these things, I understand what you're saying because I've studied it, but it's just like, that's not good. It's going to go over your head. You'll be asleep. So anyways, Matthew 24, 4 through 14. Carol will be preaching next week since she knows this stuff better than me. So, okay. What? Yes, yes. In fact, she can come up here right now and want to correct me when I make anything, any mistakes. You just do that to Don, right? <laughs> okay, Matthew 24, 4 through 14. Let's, let's fly through this. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Except for Carol, apparently. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. It is the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so these are some signs. And there are six signs. The first one is false Christ, Matthew 24, 5, and 11. The second one is wars, 
Matthew 24, 6 and 7. Natural disasters is a third sign. Matthew 24, 7. Matthew 24, 9, there will be persecution. Matthew 24, 10, there's going to be, people will fall away. That's called apostasy. And they're going to fall away as verses 11, 12, and 13 tell us because of offense, because of false prophets, and because of increased sin. And finally, the last point, last sign is evangelism. The gospel is going to be preached. Okay? Now, we looked at the parallel verses to Matthew 24. Do you remember where they are? Well, there's Luke 21 and Mark 13, but specifically to these signs is Revelation chapters 6 through 19, we believe. Now, they give greater detail to the extent of the signs. Now, the difficult thing with interpreting as best we can the book of Revelation is it is apocalyptic literature. There are things that you can take literally and things that you need to look at and take symbolically. And we'll eventually get into what is called prophetic perspective or a double fulfillment that one, a prophet will say something and it have a meaning here and it also has a meaning for in the future, which makes this incredibly difficult to teach. Okay? And it shows how much we don't know. <laughs> okay? That being said, by studying what the Bible says about the science preceding Christ's coming, we can be ready for his return, and that's the key, just to be ready, be prepared. Now, throughout human history, I said there have always been, what, false Christs and wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and persecutions and apostasies and the global preaching of the gospel, but they have never approached the intensity and scope as described in Revelation. Therefore, we can confidently conclude that Jesus Christ's second coming is not imminent. And by imminent, what did I mean by that? At any moment, or tomorrow, maybe even a month from now, next month, and so on, because the signs of his coming have not happened to the extent that we believe the Bible teaches. And Jesus tells us that the key to understanding the signs of his coming are what? You remember this? Birth pangs. The birth pangs. Okay? What happens when, I, and he mentions this, Paul mentions this, I think, or Peter, that birth pangs vary in what? Frequency and intensity. They start out farther apart, right? And are a little less intense. But when they are frequent and more intense, what do you know? The child is coming, okay? It's ready to be born. And so that idea tells me that there's going to be some of these, and they're just going to increase in intensity. And, and that's one way, that I think, is the grace of God. You're going to know his coming is near, okay? So that's the same with the second coming. There'll be frequent, intense signs that precede his coming, so we'll know the end is near. Now here's the catch. His return isn't imminent, but at the same time, the Bible does teach a sudden and unexpected return of Jesus Christ. Our Lord compared his coming like a thief in the night. Thief in the night. Look at verses 43 and 44, Matthew 24. Jesus is speaking, says, but be sure of this. 
that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 44, for this reason you also must be ready. And that's the key, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. The idea of his return being like a thief coming at night was echoed by Peter. I think I put this verse up here, yeah. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, where did Peter get this idea from? Jesus. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. By the way, this is a passage. Okay. The day of the Lord, do you know what that refers to, by the way? Anybody? Want to take a guess? That's the second coming, the day of the Lord, okay? Now, this is why people, if you're an amillennialist, and you know what that means, by the way? I hate it sounding smarter than I really am, but there's no thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, okay? They will quote this verse because it says, the day of the Lord, his second coming, is going to come like a thief in the night. Then what happens? What does it say up there? Heavens pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. That's referring to the devastation or the destruction of the current heavens and earth, which would be followed by what? The new heavens and the new earth. So where's the thousand years in between that, right? So, anyways, um, Paul wrote this about the thief in the night. For you yourselves know that full well that the day of the Lord, and again, it's the second coming, will come just like a thief in the night. And this is astounding. He says, while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. A woman with child. Now, obviously, this is Paul speaking. Paul was not there when Jesus spoke, but the disciples were. This obviously was commonly taught in the early church because Paul was taught this, and Paul is now writing on it. He says, they will not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day, meaning his second coming, would overtake you like a thief. Now, we look at these three verses here. What happens when a thief breaks into a house? Well, the victims are almost always what? Surprised, right? Yeah. The thief coming is a sudden and unexpected event. So will Jesus' second coming. It's going to be sudden, and it's going to be unexpected. And he says it's just like the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. It was also sudden and unexpected for some. Look at Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Okay? Now we understand that what was going on during that time is that this was the first society. God raised up Noah. He was building that ark. And he was also preaching. And we know he preached, I think it was for 120 years, saying judgment was coming and nobody listened. 
a nobody. And then the flood came, and what happens is when the flood came, what did the people, some of the people realize? He was right. This is not the judgment of God. Okay, but it was too late. Okay? What makes this hard for me to teach about is as we look at the wars and rumors of wars, all these signs that we've talked about, and then we see Revelation, and it gives greater detail that how in the world can people not realize that this is, I mean, we're talking massive, right, just an outpouring of wars and natural disasters and false Christs, okay? All these things that are happening, the persecution of the church and people fleeing and hiding and all that, on such a scale that we're led to believe, how in the world could someone be, could his coming be sudden and unexpected? And yet our Lord is saying as well, people are just going to be oblivious to it. Life is going to go on as normal, okay? So for some, it will be sudden and unexpected. And so in that regard, we can say, I mean, I think I got here, shockingly, despite all the signs of his return occurring, the false Christ, the wars, the natural disasters, etc., there will be people who are not prepared for his coming and find his return sudden and unexpected. My question is, how is this possible, number one? And number two is, who are these people? But it's possible because these people just simply don't know the Bible. Either they have not been taught the signs of his return. That's not you guys, is it? <laughs> or they have not studied the sign of his return on their own. Either way, Jesus says they don't understand as they are caught off guard by his coming. Now, the more important question, I think, is who are these people? Well, I believe these people fall into two groups. And, you, and this is just common sense. The first group would be unbelievers. They have no idea that Jesus is coming again. Thus, they do not understand because they are biblically illiterate. Okay? They're biblically illiterate. If you look at verse 15, Jesus says, let the reader understand. Okay. So they don't understand because they don't, they don't know Jesus is coming and they don't understand because they're biblically illiterate. But what is troubling for me is the second category of people I think they're going to be taken off guard when Jesus Christ comes again, and that would be what I, immature believers. I mean, they know Jesus is coming again, but they don't understand because they too are biblically illiterate. And that's the problem with their church. But most importantly, it's the problem of the individual who will give an account for why you didn't know. I wrote it down here. You're to know. You had a Bible in your house. You have many Bibles in your house. You should know. You should understand. And so unbelievers and immature believers are going to be taken back by this when he comes again. Now, you want to be what I call the third category, just a mature believer. You know Jesus is coming again. You prepared, and you understand when he returns because you are not biblically literate. You know, you studied, you are prepared. In fact, I said for us to prepare for his coming, what are we to do? Pray for his return. That's what Jesus is looking for when he returns. Are we ready? Are we praying for his return? So we can know the signs of his coming. In fact, look at Matthew 24, 25. What does Jesus say? 
I've told you in advance, okay? The signs point to his return being imminent. At the same time, we do not know the hour or day of his return. That's Matthew 24, 36. And so we live in this tension between knowing and not knowing. And I believe that that is all by God's design so that we remain alert in a state of readiness. And that's the point. Be ready. Now, this is a part that gave me headaches and hurt my brain. Did I not put this up here? I didn't do it right. There's supposed to be a thing here that says the abomination of desolation. I forgot to put in the slide there. Anyways, if you recall, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. Go back to Matthew 24, verse 3. Okay? We read verses 4 through 14. Let's look at verse uh, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And what has Jesus said to them prior to this? this the temple is going to be destroyed. Okay? He's, and they are curious, so they say, tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So it's, when will this happen, and what will be the sign? Now, Jesus answers them in verses 4 through 14 with a description of not one sign, but a lot of different signs. These are general signs, false Christs, wars, natural disasters, etc. Okay? Carol not knowing the definition of every word that's ever been made up, all right? But they didn't ask for general signs, did they? What they asked for? The sign of his coming. You see that? After all, there have always been religious deceivers and wars and persecutions and apostasies, etc., etc. How do we know which sign triggers the return of Jesus Christ? And he answers their question in verse 15. Of all the signs, this is the one you really need to know. And Jesus uses the word when, and that's a reference to time. There will be a time when you see a specific event that launches, that launches uh, the general signs in verses 4 through 14. This is the beginning of the end of the age of grace that began in Genesis 9 with Noah. But judgment is about to begin. And this is so important, Jesus says, at the end of verse 15, that let the reader understand. So when you see a specific event, you better understand. That's his point. Look at verse 15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of, th of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And we'll discuss that today and next week as well. Let me give you just four quick observations on this verse. The abomination of desolation is something that we can see. You see that? When you see. I think this also implies that this is not a brief, one-time event. It will be visible for a period of time. Now, the word abomination, the second point, um, the Greek word is too hard to say. <laughs> and it means an object of disgust, repulsion, or abhorrence, or horror. And in Scripture, it is primarily used to denote 
things associated with idolatry. And so the abomination of desolation may be translated the abomination which makes desolate or which lays waste. In other words, the abomination causes the desolation. The abomination that causes desolation is something that we can see and it is connected to idolatry. With me so far? Number three, Daniel the prophet first spoke of it. That's what Jesus says. In fact, he spoke of it three times. I planned on just on getting through all three of these this morning, but I couldn't get past Daniel 9.27. We'll discuss that, but we'll look at the rest of them hopefully next week, 11.31 and 12.11. And the final observation is the abomination of desolation stands in the holy place. Now stands, I think, also indicates it is in the holy place for some time. Again, it's not a brief event. Now, what is the holy place? And this is where it gets kind of ridiculous. But some say it refers to the nation of Israel. Okay? You ever heard that before? Some say, uh, others say it refers to Jerusalem, the holy city. When you think of the holy place, what do you think of? The temple. Okay? In context, okay, when it was spoken to Daniel, this is a picture of Solomon's temple. Okay, I just want to show you this. Um, and then when Jesus was speaking, there was Herod's temple, which still would have looked very similar to this. Okay? But you can see all the gold that's in there. Um, this section right here, all this right here, that's considered the holy place. If you can see here, there was a curtain that was right here, and this would have been the holy of holies. And that, when Jesus died, of course, what happened to that? It was torn in two. Okay? So this is the the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, but the whole thing was called the Holy Place. And so what Gabriel said to Daniel was, when you see standing in the Holy Place, in here, the abomination that causes desolation, you know, understand this, okay? And that's in the context when this was, this, this was spoken through to Daniel, and we'll get to this in a minute here, um, I just want to give you a picture so you can see that. So, biblically, the holy place, if you want to, the, the best, the most information, the most evidence points to it being like the temple. Okay? Now, the question is, what is the sign then? It's called the abomination of desolation. And it's first mentioned in Daniel 9.27. And what I'm going to do for the rest of this time this morning, this will be a little bit of a review, but also some new stuff. And then I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you um, a dispensational pre-tribulation rapture interpretation. Next week, I'll give you a, a reformed or millennial interpretation of this, okay? Because I want to give you both sides. You can see where they both kind of make sense. And you'll see the strengths and weaknesses of each uh, position, okay? And again, there are very solid believers and professors and theologians on both sides. Either you're a dispensational or you're a covenant theologian, okay? Now, the context here real briefly, which I'll get into more next week, but Daniel read Jeremiah and saw that the Babylonian captivity 
of 70 years was coming to an end. So he prayed. And the angel Gabriel is answering Daniel's prayer, and Daniel's asking to restore Jerusalem according to God's covenant promise. Okay? And what would be God's covenant promise? Remember this? If you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you don't obey me, you'll be cursed. And what was the curse? Other nations would dominate you. Okay? And so God revealed to Jeremiah, it's only going to last 70 years, Babylonian captivity. So Daniel prays, well, then maybe we could end this and you can restore Jerusalem. So Daniel prays this, Gabriel's answering this prayer, but in doing so, what he does, and this is where it gets difficult, he delivers to Daniel a prophetic message that is detailing the future. Okay? It's detailing the future. So turn to Daniel chapter 9, okay, verses 24 through 27. Now, while you're you're taking time to get there, this is a foundation stone, a pillar of dispensational eschatology, which eschatology means the study of end times. This is a very foundation for their understanding of how things are going to play out, okay? You ready? It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, here we go, will come one who makes desolate. So this is the first reference to the abomination of desolation. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, to remind us, all of us, dispensational eschatology, which is, what is eschatology again? So the end times. They interpret these end time verses with a, a, a very unique um, take on the difference between Israel and the church. In other words, it's basically this. Who is God speaking to at this time? Daniel. And who is that? Daniel is a part of what? Israel. All right? Where is the church? Where is the church? Where is the church? Is it in existence? No. Ephesians says that it's the mystery that was revealed and that Jew and Gentile in the creation of the church. This is what the prophets didn't understand. Okay? The church didn't exist. Okay? In one sense, you could say it did because it was really those who were believers really in the descendants of Abraham by faith. 
But that being said, the church as it is inaugurated in the New Testament, this new idea, the body of Christ, it didn't exist. So when Jesus comes on the scene, who does he come to minister to? He came to the Jews, and they rejected him. And then what does he do then after his resurrection? He says, I'm, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to give it to somebody who cares. And now the focus is on the Gentiles, okay? And so, and one of the things that you, you'll discover in the Bible is that it's no longer just Israel that can be saved, or Jews. It is Jews and Gentiles. And you're going to find out that when you look at the Old Testament, it was already there, but the focus was always on Israel. God's plan was that Israel would be such a holy nation, and it would be a testimony to the other nations, and that people would believe in God, and he would be glorified. But it didn't work out that way. So now we're in the time of the, of, of the church, the age of the church. Okay? They're going to see in here one more seven-year period where God stops dealing with Gentiles and starts dealing with, again, Israel. And that's called Daniel's 70th week or the Great Tribulation. Okay? And that's where all the bad stuff happens. All right? And you'll see a picture here in a moment. Now, do you understand that difference? That is a key to dispensational um, structuring of the Bible. There's a big difference between Israel and the church, okay? How they get there and they completely ignore the fact that the Bible says that there is no what? Jew or Gentile, right? Male or female, you know, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, we're all one and who? And the new Israel is what? The church, okay? Therefore, all Israel will be saved. Anyways. You got that. You just have to, I want you to get a real brief understanding of that. It's a difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology. Again, good people on both sides. Okay. In the last seven years of Daniel's 70th week, God is going to resume his dealings with Israel because the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. So the words spoken to Daniel pertain primarily to Israel since the church did not exist at the time. So let's look at this here. This is the time that I've been giving you. And this is obviously, since we're talking about Daniel, this is when Daniel was alive, okay? And he was obviously, you can read Daniel, alive during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. He even goes into the time of Darius the Mede, okay? And so I think it was Darius the Mede, right, that were the lions and the lion's den and all that, okay? And so he was a contemporary of Jeremiah. He read Jeremiah's works and of Ezekiel. Okay, this is when he was taken into captivity, I believe, roughly. Okay, he was a young, young boy. Okay, now let me just say this as well. Did I put this up here? I'm gonna get real quick. I'll go back. The time of the Gentiles is understood as to be what I said is that okay, God, Jesus comes, he's now back in heaven, and we can read these verses. This is the time of the Gentiles. But to be honest with you, if you want to be very specific about this, the time of the Gentiles probably goes back to here. Because from that time on, from 586 B.C., until really maybe even 1948, Israel has been under what? 
Gentile ruler oppressed by the Gentiles, right? They just became a nation. Am I right? Was it 1948? Okay, a sovereign nation. So some people interpret the time of Gentiles as starting right here. But anyways, that's just a separate little point. I just wanted you to have a visual so you can see that this is when Daniel was born. Now, we'll, next week we'll look at... Um, but anyways, I'm going to confuse you. Let's go to here now. The six events mentioned in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, <coughs> to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. These are the six events that, that Gabriel talked about. And so if you are a dispensationalist, you understand this passage this way. Verse 24 is a summary of the prophecy. Verse 25 is the first 69 weeks of Daniel. Let me show you what this is right here. It would be right here. This is where we are right now. Okay, the first 69 weeks. Okay? So, and it said what? From the time of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, right? There's going to be 62 sevens plus seven sevens, so that's 69 weeks, which equals 483 years, and the claim from dispensationalists is what happened here? The decree to restore Jerusalem. Which book of the Bible talks about that? Nehemiah. Remember he was, had that long face before his king, and the king said, what's going on? Are you sad? And they said, okay, how can I be happy when my city is in ruin? And he gets the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. And you take this, and you do all the math, all the numbers, Okay. In fact, I think it's Sir Robert Anderson, when he converted the actual days, he could take it to a very specific day, and it comes down to here, would be when uh, 483 years to this event, which would have been the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Okay. I think it's like April 21st, 32 AD or something like that, or 33 AD. I don't remember it off the top of my head. But it's a very specific prophecy. And the key for the dispensationalists is it's a chronological or numerical interpretation of Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Okay? You guys understand that? <laughs> I give you a visual. I've gone over this before. All right. So let me go back. Right? Yeah. So that's the summary of the prophecy, verse 24. The first six nine weeks of Daniel. The time that we are in now is right here. Okay, this is the time we're in now. All right. And then go back. Verse 27 is the 70th week of Daniel. And that would be this time right here. Okay, Daniel's 70th week. That's in the future. Now, what you notice is, is that, and this is one of the things that's unique to dispensational theology, is what have they inserted into the text between verses 26 and 27? A gap of time. It's been almost 2,000 years. All right? Now, whether you see that in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, you know, it, it's really going to depend upon how you are taught. Okay? There are some that see this gap in time, some that don't see this gap in time, okay? 
But there's a gap in time that they insert here, and that's why it says this right here. Tell me, we're now in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, the question, of course, is the sevens. Do they refer to days, weeks, months, or years? Now, where there's agreement upon any reputable scholar, whether you are a dispensational or a covenant, is that the 77s is referred to sevens of years, so it's 490 years. Okay? So if the six things of Daniel 9.24, these six things, okay, are not completed in 490 days, weeks, or months, it is logical to assume sevens refers to sevens of years. And so they say it's sevens of years, they do all the math, and they get to you know, the 483 years in the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, and there's one more seven-year period, okay, where God is going to resume his dealings with Israel, okay, and it's going to be right here. It's called Daniel's 70th week. Okay, so this is Daniel 9.26. This is Daniel 9.27, all right? And that seven-year period, this is where all the stuff that we've been talking about, these signs happen, Okay? Now, let's look at this. It says, let's look at verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Actually, look at verse 26. What does that say? I'm going to read verse 26 out loud real quick. Judy, read it out loud. So there's a prince who's coming. And if from dispensational, eschatological understanding, that prince is who? The Antichrist. That's what we've been taught. It's the Antichrist, okay? And he's a future leader, and he shows up here. This is the prince that makes a covenant. Now, since God is working with Israel now, who does he make a covenant with? And who was this, who was Daniel speak, who is Gabriel speaking to? It's Daniel. And so he's speaking to who? Israel, not the church. Israel. Okay? So you have to put away all of this in the fact that the church and Israel are the same. And you have to put that aside now and say God is, is now, the church is gone. By, this is, by the way, I apologize. There's another big event that dispensationalists say happens. What happens right here? A secret rapture, and the church is taken up. So there's no more church. God now begins to, uh, according to prophecy, one more seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, and starts dealing with Israel, and there's going to be probably a, a, a political worldwide ruler who will protect Israel and make a covenant with her. And now again, what do we know about the abomination of desolation? We went over all those specific points. Where is it going to happen? There's going to be an abomination, probably an idol, and where's it going to happen? In the holy place. So therefore, if you are dispensational in your understanding, what has to be rebuilt? The temple. Now, who has, you guys heard this stuff before? Anybody? How, how have you heard of it? David Jeremiah or the Left Behind series. It's very, very popular, okay? 
And I'm grateful for the dispensational eschatology because it's brought this stuff back to the forefront and got people thinking. So somehow during this time frame, the temple will be rebuilt. There's going to be a covenant with this roadride ruler. Okay? And then halfway through, three and a half years in, um, the abomination that causes desolation. Now let's turn, I just want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is where we get this information. Starting in verse 3 and 4 and verses 8 and 9. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, and they're talking about the day of the Lord, the second coming. They've been deceived and duped into thinking that it already happened, and he says, no, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen unless the apostasy comes first. What's apostasy mean? People are going to fall away. Deny Christ. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who's that referring to? The Antichrist. Who, watch this, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the what? Temple of God. Displaying himself as being God. Now this leads us to believe, from a dispensational understanding, that right around here, this prince, probably a worldwide ruler, political ruler, will then stop the sacrifices that are going on. Okay? Because look at chapter 27. Or I'll read Daniel 9, 27 to you. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And so... Most likely, we believe that this worldwide ruler, probably possessed by Satan, will stop the sacrifices, demand to be worshipped, and to be like a god, okay, in the holy place, a rebuilt temple, and that is the abomination that causes desolation, and that triggers, for the last three and a half years, the intensity of the wars, the false Christ, all of it. Okay? Does that make sense? That is the sign that you need to understand. And it's mentioned three times in Daniel. Jesus references it. And even Paul mentions it. Okay? Now look at verses, um, 2 Thessalonians verses um, 8 and 9. It says, Then the lawless one, they believe it's the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. There's the second coming of Jesus. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And so this probably Satan-possessed individual will be a charismatic individual, we believe, and he's going to do the abomination that causes us. It will be revealed who he is. Israel will finally know. Then all the fleeing, all the hiding, all the stuff we'll eventually read, that stuff happens, okay? And then this is all the bad stuff of Revelation, and then Jesus comes again, okay? Any questions so far? And I just scratched the surface of this stuff, okay? So again, this is a dispensational understanding of these events, Okay? 
You awake? It's very, very quiet in here. Okay. You guys are familiar with this a little bit? Okay, good, good. So let me give you a answer a couple of questions. What's the difference between Israel and the church from a dispensational perspective? They're separate. God dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. Now we're in the time of the Gentiles and the church now. And then what's he going to do in the future? Rapture will happen, and he'll deal with Israel again for how long? Well, a seven-year period, with the 70th week of Daniel, okay? And in that 70th week, what will happen? There's going to be peace. A covenant will be formed between Israel and the world or this ruler. What will be rebuilt? Temple. And then three and a half years in, what's going to happen? All the animal sacrifices and offerings are going to stop. And who will be in that holy place? The Antichrist, and he will demand to be worshipped. Okay? And we say it's probably a, a, a Satan-possessed individual because what has Satan always wanted? To be worshipped. Okay? All right? Am I missing anything, Tom? It's kind of a basic understanding because you have a dispensational background, right? Yeah. So I'm just trying to give you a, a, an understanding of that. And this is a, a dispensational understanding of, of what the abomination of desolation is. And there are other verses we look at. I mean, I had to spend hours up here. Okay. Um, one other thing. Turn to Matthew 24, 15. I'll close with this. The other thing I would say is that the dispensationalists see between Daniel 9, 26 and 27, they insert a period of time, a gap. Okay, and it's a gap that's going on 2,000 years now. All right? And that's this time right here, the time of the Gentiles. The last half or last sentence of verse 15 or the last words are, let the reader understand. Now, what that means from a dispensational perspective is the exhortation, let the reader understand, reinforces the fact that Jesus was not giving the warnings in this sermon to the disciples themselves or to their, this, the generation. But to what? When? In the end time. In this specific time right here. You see? So it's, it, it, that's what they said. If it, if it was just saying to them, and it was for them only, then all those things that we read in, in the six things of Daniel would have had to have happened. Okay? The, let the reader understand means it's for believers in the end time, who will read these truths in Scripture and being able to understand the trials that they are enduring. Okay? So what is the sign that we need to know? Because what is the latest natural disaster going on right now? Fire in Hawaii. Okay? So you get the idea here. How do we know? Well, there is one sign that we really need to know, and it is what? The abomination of desolation. That is a, this morning I gave you a dispensational perspective of Daniel 9 and of that. Next week, we'll look at a, a reformed or a, a covenant understanding of that.
and that that has already been fulfilled in many, many ways with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay, this would be a, this is from amillennialists. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning as we talk about something that is is exciting and it's also kind of complex. So open our eyes, teach us your ways, Lord, and give us understanding. I pray that we would be ready, prepared for your coming. And all God's people said, amen. I don't know about you, but being up here and moving around, I'm hot, starting to sweat. Be warm today. Have a great day. Stay cool. God bless you.